Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Dorora, and we are business and litigation lawyers with the B Hall Law Group in Columbus, Ohio. And we are here with Paul Back, Professor Emeritus at OSU, the Ohio State University. Uh, welcome, Paul. Good to be with you. We're going to talk today about uh, dark money, and um, obviously in the state of Ohio, it's a, uh, a very timely topic because we have our Speaker of the House of Representatives currently uh, indicted uh, with, um, with the issue being how much dark money uh, was maybe spent improperly. Paul, I think a great way to start off our conversation would be to, as a lawyer who I practiced with once upon a time would say, let's take some baby steps. So maybe we walk through the basic, basic campaign contributions, go through PACs, et cetera, and then, and then hit the dark money thing. So let's start off with the most basic part of trying to influence legislation is good old fashioned making a campaign contribution, right? Sure. And mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. In other words, I go to a legislator. I say, hey, I like what you're doing. I want you to think about this banking issue. Here's $500 for your campaign, right? Right. No problem with that. And there is no problem with that. Now, there are both at the federal level and the state level uh, restrictions, limits on how much we can give in any election cycle. To a candidate. The, the restrictions, by the way, or the limits at the federal level are considerably lower than they are at the state level. The federal level, I think the total for this year is a little bit over $5,000 in terms of contributions. Uh, at the federal or at the state level, I believe it's close to fourteen dollars to $15,000. So we can give more to state candidates, non-federal candidates, than we can give to federal candidates. And, you know, for most of us, uh, I'm certainly never going to meet that limit uh, in my contributions to anybody, uh, maybe except for my grandchildren, I guess. Uh, but uh, they're not running for office now. Uh, but there are a lot of donors who want to give more than that. And the question is then, how do they do that? How do they get more money into the, uh, the, the coffers or, or uh, to, to support various candidates. They can't give it under federal law and under state law directly to the candidate campaigns, which is a real oddity in a way. Uh, yeah, I mean, you would think that, that the money ought to flow into the campaigns for the candidates to use. The truth is the big donors don't trust the candidates to use that money wisely. And so they would much rather use it themselves, even if they're supporting a particular candidate at an arm's length, and it needs to be an arm's length. And so you won't find, for example, the Koch brothers, who are big donors, uh, giving probably any money to the candidates they like. What they will do instead is give them to political action committees that are investing in campaigns independent of the candidate, uh, and they can give unlimited amounts to those political action committees. Or in the case of dark money, which we'll get to later on, uh, they, can, they can basically launder the funds or send the funds through these 501c4s. 
But the important distinction I want to emphasize is that the way the campaign finance or campaign funding system, a regime as political scientists like to call it, is set up, is that candidates don't really receive much direct money from people. Much of the money flow goes in other ways. Even if it's supporting the candidates, it's not money that they could put their hands on and, and use directly themselves. And you're, I'm sorry, when you're looking at Jack's example um, of uh, Jack giving money to a local candidate, the money that Jack gives is reported by the, the candidate, right? Correct. Jack doesn't have any reporting requirements and he doesn't have to tell anybody, but all of the money that's going into, even if we do it on a federal level, if we're giving Joe Biden money, Joe Biden's campaign has to report where that money came from and how much, correct? That's correct. They, they also, we are asked if we donate money to a federal campaign, we are asked, uh, are we a U.S. citizen? Because it's illegal for foreigners to give money. Now, there are ways around that, as we all can, can imagine. Uh, and we actually have to tell them if we are employed, who we are employed by, and that information goes to the Federal Election Commission. Uh, the Federal Election Commission reports that. I, I, some years ago when I was doing work on campaign funding, went into the FEC files and was looking up various contributions uh, and also looking up expenditures, which have to be reported. I noticed, by the way, this was the, the 2008 contest uh, that the McCain campaign workers were living pretty high on the hog with these campaign contributions, whereas the Obama workers and volunteers, uh, one suspected, you can't really see this in the FEC information, but they were crashing on people's couches and eating, well, you could see them eating at Wendy's, uh, whereas the McCain people were eating in, in better restaurants, and of course, uh, it was it turned out a waste of money. But the point I want to make is that the FEC maintains these files. You and I can go to the FEC website, and there are other websites you can get this from as well, including a, a website called Open Secrets. Uh, you can go into these websites and you can look at particular zip codes to see who is giving in your neighborhood and to what candidates they're giving. Uh, you can see if you run particular names. You can see if, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Jack Dora is giving to Republicans or Democrats. Uh, all of that information is available. Uh, and in fact, Open Secrets has done a really good job of making it easy for you to get into that. When I, when I taught my political parties course, a number of my students would go into these websites to see who I was giving money. <laughs> and I actually was very careful during that period uh, to give money under my wife's name so they, so they couldn't track me very well. But some of them were pretty clever, actually, and they were able to get my address and then figure out who I was giving money to. You know, the, the thing we see in the papers is dark money. But before we get to that topic, let's go to something in between, at least in my view, in between the dark money and me making a personal contribution. And the way my brain works, okay. that's a good old-fashioned lobbying. 
explain where lobbying fits into this world of campaign finance. Well, lobbyists are people, obviously, who are paid to uh, approach state legislators or members of Congress or presidents, for that matter, or bureaucrats in the executive branch, either at the federal level or, or at the state level, to try to persuade them to vote, for, to, to support uh, particular pieces of legislation. Uh, many of which, by the way, in this era of term limits, uh, much of this legislation is actually written by the lobbyists uh, and passed along to a favored legislator uh, at either the state level, particularly at the state level, uh, because of term limits, but also to some degree at the federal level. Sometimes they are actually in the room when there's a, a bill markup done by a committee where the lobbyist is actually saying, well, no, no, here's how you need to do this. Uh, here's the language you want to use. But they're basically, and, and they are a fundamental part of the democratic system, by the way, uh, because they are making use of their ability to try to persuade uh, political officials to make policy that favors particular interests. They can be labor unions, they can be the, the uh, ed education association, they can be particular corporations. Uh, the old research literature on this, by the way, suggested that you shouldn't really think of corporate corporations as a single lobby. Often they are lobbying against each other. Uh, they often are lobbying to favor natural gas versus oil uh, or coal. They often are lobbying to favor certain kinds of trade practices that will benefit their company and may disadvantage their competitors. Uh, but it's a world that is just full of, of people who often are very effective uh, in their persuasion techniques. And of course, what they're also doing is whining and dining legislators, uh, trying to develop good relations with them, inviting them to parties, uh, sometimes depending on what the ethics laws look like, either at the federal level or the state level, they will, are found to be crossing the lines. Uh, when I lived in Florida, by the way, I had a neighbor who was a lobbyist for Chevron. And every year he would sponsor, just in the beginning of the legislative session, uh, a boat tour in the Gulf of Mexico, where he brought together a number of legislators with basically call girls he had hired to uh, be friendly with them, I shall say. Uh, and they would have a great time until one enterprising reporter somehow got onto the boat, even cruise ships, got onto the boat and reported chapter and verse, and it just blew the whole thing out of the water. Uh, and some of these legislators actually were defeated uh, as a result of, of the expose. Is there any uh, problem with the lobbyist raising money for the candidates? Well, lobbyists will do that. Uh, we often talk about them as bundlers, where they are throwing, let's say, some kind of a, a reception for a particular candidate uh, and inviting a series of people whom they hope will contribute to that candidate's cause. Uh, they may say to people, and I've, I've attended such, such receptions, and both of you probably have as well, uh, the lobbyist will say to people who are in the room, hey, Paul Beck is somebody that we really should be supporting. Uh, he cares about the kinds of things we care about. 
Uh, we want to make sure he is elected. Uh, we're going to pass the hat here and put your checks in. There are limits on how much you can give to him. Under Ohio law, it would be, what, fourteen dollars to $15,000. You want to write a check for that amount, you will get an extra drink at the, at the reception. But sure, no, they're, they're actively engaged in raising money. Uh, and they do this all the time, not just in election season, but over the course of time. And of course, legislators particularly uh, are very much looking for help in raising campaign money. It is often said at the federal level that about half of the time of a member of Congress is spent trying to raise money to support their campaigns. And that's an incredible figure. If you think about that, uh, the job is not fundraising. The job really should be legislating and doing the kinds of things we expect them to do. But to stay in office, they've got to raise money. Uh, and most of them don't like doing that particularly, uh, but they are, are heavily engaged in it and they have to be. Paul, outside of helping sponsor fundraisers for legislators, do lobbyists have any role in the in the, as a conduit for money for campaign purposes, campaign finance purposes? Probably a, a small role in terms of individual contributions. On the other hand, they are very well connected with political action committees. Uh, and some of these 501c4s uh, that we're gonna talk about later on. Uh, and they will be funneling money in those directions. and it, it probably goes as follows. Uh, a particular lobbyist will say to a potential donor, hey, you've already maxed out at how much you can give to candidate X, but candidate X is supported by a political action committee. Uh, and you can give tremendous amounts of money if you want to to that political action committee, but we cannot protect your anonymity. So it will be known that you've given this money. Uh, the laws have become much more liberal over time as to how much they can give. Now they can give it at the presidential level to individual state committees for a presidential candidate. And so you can multiply 50 times whatever they would get. And there is a limit on contributions to two PACs, uh, but it's a much higher limit than for individuals. Uh, so you can give 50 times whatever that contribution limit is, uh, and we're talking then about hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and the lobbyist in many ways is the intermediary there. He's the one who is connecting donors with the candidate's cause. Now, under the law, the political action committees have to be independent of the candidates. They can't coordinate with the candidates. But typically, and you saw it again this year in 2020, uh, typically, the people running the political action committees are people who were on the campaign committees of those candidates two years ago or four years ago. So they're very well known to the candidates. Do they coordinate? Not in a formal way. But on the other hand, it's very easy for them to signal through the press that they are organized to support Donald Trump or Joe Biden, uh, and then donors are going to know where their money is going to go. Uh, and if you look at uh, uh, political action committees that are registered under the Federal Election Commission, you get all kinds of names 
and sometimes candidates, and I think Trump did this in 2016 and maybe he's doing it again in 2020, he's basically saying to these political action committees that are organized to support his campaign, don't all of you do the same thing. Uh, I want to channel the money to particular ones, uh, not just dissipate the money across a whole bunch of them. But there are thousands of political action committees. The important thing is that there are limits on the contributions, but more importantly, those donations are public. We know what they are once the FEC reports them, and it reports them after every quarterly cycle. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes there's a delay. If money is coming in, for instance, in late October, we're not going to know about that until after the election. But money that is coming in prior to the election, we will typically know about. You mentioned with uh, federal candidates, the Open Secrets uh, website. Is, is there yes. something similar with the PACs if somebody wanted to go and find out what PACs are out there and who's donating to the PACs? Is there a database like that available? Yeah, Open Secrets would provide that as well. Okay. Uh, so that information is out there. Uh, also, sometimes, uh, you know, reporters are very enterprising. And often what they will do is kind of poke around and see if they can get any information about where the money is going from particularly wealthy uh, investors. And some of these wealthy contributors want the candidates to know that they're giving the money and are not at all reluctant to be very open. The Koch brothers are this way. They're not at all reluctant to be open about where their money is going. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, who has given money to uh, Israeli causes in the past and candidates he thinks are, are friendly to Israel, he's been very open about where that money is going. They don't need to hide it. They're proud of it in a way. Uh, and they will hold fundraisers, in fact, where they often will invite the candidates to come. Uh, and they're telling the candidates, hey, I'm going to invest such and such an amount in your campaign. Uh, and they want the candidate to know that. Did this decision by the Supreme Court a few years back, Citizens United, did it affect PACs or is it affecting other types of organizations to funnel money through? It, it affected almost everything. Uh, prior to 2010, which was the decision uh, of Citizens United, corporations and labor unions could not give money from their corporate accounts or their former labor, formal labor union accounts. Labor unions had to set up a separate fund that people would contribute to for electioneering or political contributions. Corporations could ask uh, some of their executives and others uh, to contribute money, or they could set up a political action committee, uh, but they couldn't do it from the corporate treasury. They had to do it separately. What Citizens United did was allowed corporations and labor unions, and it was corporations that mostly uh, took advantage of that, to give the money directly to political action committees and to these 501c4s, uh, which were kind of a new player on the block, at least in terms of the amount of money that they were, they were dealing with. Uh, Citizens United, by the way, wasn't just an out-of-the-blue decision. The Supreme Court, rather steadily over time, had been saying 
you, you cannot regulate independent spending. If John Doe or either of you or me want to spend unlimited amounts of money on behalf of a particular candidate, we can't give unlimited amounts to that candidate, but we could spend money on television advertising that says, uh, we have to be very careful how we say it, but says, for example, don't vote for Joe Biden. Now that'd be okay. Uh, but we couldn't in the old days say vote for Donald Trump. Uh, we had to be very cautious about how we worded that. Uh, with Citizens United and these earlier decisions, uh, those kinds of constraints were basically blown away. And what the court was saying is that it's a First Amendment right for any of us to be able to spend our money as long as it's spent independent of a candidate uh, to invest that money in a political campaign. That's free speech is what they were saying. And of course, once they said that, and Citizens United is really kind of the dominant case there, but once they've said that, there is really no way that Congress or even state legislatures can restrict individual spending as long as it's independent. Uh, and of course, what's happened is that the floodgates were pretty much opened after Citizens United. That reminds me of um, an article I read the other day about Michael Bloomberg. He's going to spend $100 million in Florida on behalf of Joe Biden. Yes. That fits right into what we're talking about, right? Exactly. Now, he can't give it to Biden. And there, in fact, was some criticism of Bloomberg before from some of the Biden people, and maybe even some of the Bernie Sanders people, who were saying, well, there are all these people that Bloomberg had paid to work on his presidential campaign. Can he just continue paying them and assign them to Joe Biden? And the answer is, under federal campaign finance laws, he can't do that. That would be a campaign contribution. And he very quickly would blow beyond whatever the limits are, you know, the $5,000 plus limits. And so what Bloomberg is doing is spending his money independently of the candidate, not coordinating with the Biden campaign, but there's kind of a wink and a nod there. I mean, the Biden campaign knows what he's doing because the Bloomberg people have said what they're doing. Uh, and they also know that the Biden campaign is not doing certain things in Florida, so the Bloomberg people would do those other things. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it all is done on behalf of, though not coordinated with, Joe Biden and the Biden campaign. Let's go back to this uh, pre-United, or Citizens United, prior to that decision. In those yes. days, the PACs, the only difference between a PAC and a regular for-profit corporation was that the mm -hmm. PAC had to disclose donors and was able to make contributions. A corporation, unless it's a public corporation, you don't know who the members of that corporation are. The difference is now that regular corporation can make a contribution. From corporate funds, actually. Right. right. And in fact, enterprising reporters have gone to the, at least for public, publicly traded uh, corporations, or public corporations, they've gone to their annual reports. Now these come about, you know, come in what, uh, April, June, July, you know, whatever annual reports have to be filed. 
and they comb through these annual reports to see what contributions they're reporting. And these are reports that are made for their board of trustees or their, their, their stockholders. Uh, and the, the, you know, the information's there, uh, but of course it comes well after the election. And so they've been able to piece together in, in a very enterprising kind of way what corporations are giving what to various candidate causes. But there is a way even for PACs to sort of hide the ultimate gain isn't there by way of PACs giving money to PACs and it almost becomes like a... Uh... Yeah, a PAC can give money to other PACs, which in turn can give money to still other PACs. And after a while, you've got this web of PACs that are donating the money and you really can't follow things very easily. Uh, and you particularly can't follow them if some of them are private corporations that don't really have to file an annual report that is publicly accessible. Uh, and again, the, the reporters who chase after this are pretty good at figuring out who is giving money to whom and how that money flow is, is taking place. Uh, but it usually is not until well after an election. We know uh, the example of Mike Bloomberg, he's spending a lot of his own money for a particular candidate. So let's talk now about the people that don't want you to know that they're spending money for a particular candidate or cause. How do they hide their identities yet still contribute large sums of money? Well, rather than this convoluted route under the pre-Citizens United uh, uh, regime, they wouldn't have to go to multiple PACs and kind of launder the money through various political action committees. What they can do instead is give it to a 501c4, which again is, well, it's a not-for-profit social welfare organization. Uh, but the question is, what is a social welfare organization? Under the IRS tax code, and these are all, the 501c4 is an IRS designation. It means that they can't be primarily engaged in electioneering. And the interpretation, as I understand it, was that, well, if 49% of their money is spent in electioneering, that is trying to support the election of particular candidates, uh, they're okay. They're still social welfare organizations under the tax code. If it were to go to 50 or 51%, then they might not quite qualify. But the 501c4s, again, we're very clever. They often will spend a lot of money prior to the election on electioneering. And then after the election, spend a good deal of money basically educating their members about public policy issues. That's not electioneering. And so you've got this heavy spending before the election that is offset by heavy spending afterwards. And when you combine the two and they have to do their reports to the FEC or to the IRS, really, uh, they had made it past this 50% threshold. Uh, and so there, you know, again, it, it, what's the old uh, saying? Where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, and there were kind of loopholes 
in the law. Uh, and the loopholes placed the IRS in a very difficult position because they were having to decide which of the 501c4s really qualified as a social welfare organization with the, the, the how do I want to say it, with the ability to hide the source of the donation and which ones didn't qualify. And every once in a while, they would rule that a particular 501c4 really wasn't qualified as a 501c4. And they would take it off their list, which meant that it could no longer operate in terms of hiding the sources of the donation. Uh, and of course, there was a squawk. Uh, and back in, I think it was 2013, it was, the IRS was beginning to crack down on the 501c4s. There was a feeling, particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle, that, that things were becoming very much tilted in favor of conservative organizations, particularly Tea Party organizations, and were making use of this loophole, the 501c4 loophole, to be able to launder all kinds of campaign contributions and pour them into Republican campaigns. And so there was a demand that the IRS begin to investigate these corporations. And what they did, and this was a very bureaucratic response, what they did was they said, well, there are thousands of these organizations and we have limited manpower to investigate them. So let's look at the ones that seem to have names that are partisan. And so if it was the Tea Party Patriots, for instance, it's a partisan name, we'll take a look at them. Uh, or if on the Democratic side, they were the, I, I don't know, uh, you know, Citizens for Democrats, for instance, uh, you know, that looks like it is an organization that really is electioneering and supporting candidates. And so they demanded of these organizations proof that they indeed were staying under that 50% threshold. Uh, and the organizations got their backs up and complained to Congress. Uh, and there was a real flap. There was a woman by the name of Lois Lerner, I think her name was, uh, who had the unfortunate position of heading up the office in the IRS that was charged with investigating these organizations. Uh, her office, by the way, was in Cincinnati. Uh, she was working out of the IRS offices there. Uh, and she eventually retired because she was under such heat uh, had been subpoenaed to appear before congressional committees. And this was at a time when the Republicans controlled the House. And so they really were turning up the heat on her. And what the IRS ended up doing, by the way, in 2013 and thereafter was basically backing off and say, we are just going to you know, we'll accept the word of these organizations uh, that they are legitimate 501c4s uh, and we're not going to take a look at them. And of course, the other thing that was happening is that, that lobbyists learn from other lobbyists, politicians learn from other lobbyists, what they can get away with. And so they were kind of watching this scene to see what they could do in terms of laundering money. Uh, and once one organization gets away with it, Democratic or Republican, then everybody's going to do it. Uh, and so it was almost if the dam was burst in, in 2013 or thereabouts 
Uh, and the 501c4s now, if, if you and I were giving money and we didn't want our donation to be uh, public, uh, we would channel our money through the 501c4s. And I think more and more people are doing that. Now, there, there is an issue there. And that is that some donors quite legitimately don't want anybody to know that they have backed a particular organization, like their 501c4. Uh, if it's the case of a multimillionaire, you know, the answer is why should they care? Uh, if it is Procter & Gamble, on the other hand, they may worry that by giving money to a cause that looks like it's a political cause, they might irritate some of their customers uh, who are on the other side politically. So they don't want that to be known. Uh, historically, the group that really wanted to hide its contributions, and this goes way back in time, was the NAACP that was getting contributions to support its legal fund, but getting contributions from people, some of whom were Southerners, and who didn't really want Southerners, other Southerners, Democrats in, in the case of these earlier decades, to know that they actually were backing the NAACP. And you can understand that uh, because they ran real risk uh, that their contributions would be divulged uh, and then they would come under really careful scrutiny. Uh, they might even be firebombed in certain, in, in certain places. And so in the history, there are some good examples of why particular organizations would wanna be able to hide their contributions. But I think that's pretty minor. And the petty contributions, uh, most people don't want to hide and, and really can't. Most people aren't contributing to 501c4s. As a business lawyer, a couple of questions come to mind when you talk about the 501c4. It's, as you said, a, a IRS regulation. Are, are 501c4 organizations all corporations? or they're different entities? Can an individual take advantage of that IRS code or do you have to be a, you know, an LLC or a corporation? Yeah, I assume an individual could. Uh, some of them are corporations. A lot of them are social welfare groups. Planned Parenthood, for example, would be there. Now, is it spending most of its money on social welfare activities? Yeah, I think it probably is but it also is donating to political candidates. And it's doing that through a 501c4. Uh, Carl Rove, by the way, back in, this had to be 2012, maybe, maybe 2016, but I think it was 2012, created two different funds that he was managing. One was a political action committee called Crossroads USA, I believe it was. And then he set up a 501c4 called some kind of variation on Crossroads USA. And he was telling donors to give to one or the other, depending on whether they wanted their contributions to be disclosed or not. Uh, and both of these organizations uh, got, got money, both the PAC and the 501c4. Uh, and so, in fact, I, I somewhere here on my desk or in a file somewhere, have a whole list of the 501c4. It's a long, long laundry list. Uh, and you can look it up if you were to, to Google 501c4s, you can look up what the organizations are 
that qualify under them. And it's a highly varied list of organizations. I assume the NAACP is there, Planned Parenthood is there. There are going to be organizations that are more conservative in focus that will be there. There will be some corporations there. Uh, most corporations probably are giving through PACs rather than 501c4s, mainly because they don't want their stockholders to get irritated with them that they're favoring one side over the other. It, it's like a minister in a mixed congregation of Democrats and Republicans. He or she doesn't want to endorse a particular party for fear that they will lose parishioners. Uh, and I think the same is true with a lot of corporations. And I'll, I'll take Procter & Campbell as an example. Sure, they're investing money in electioneering and in politics, largely through their lobbyists, but they're gonna be very careful about who they give money to. Many corporations have given money to both sides. Uh, Donald Trump gave money to both sides uh, through, I, I'm sure it wasn't personal money, it was corporate money. Uh, and he was investing in, in you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign for the Senate in New York. Uh, and it was mainly because he wanted each side to feel some kind of an obligation to him. Uh, and that, that's, that's very, very common. Is the not-for-profit portion of the uh, of the C four important at all? Yeah, it is. It is, uh, and so I think probably and you may know this better than I do. Probably the corporations that are giving money there are setting up some kind of an organization on the not-for-profit side because they don't want to be taxed. Right. Uh, they don't want those contributions to be taxed by the IRS. Uh, and that's another advantage, of course, of the 501 C4s and the 527s. Uh, that I think, well, now wait a minute. Yeah, I think 527 uh, uh, money can't be taxed either, although I'd want to double check that to be sure. I think it's time for us to get a little closer, or not closer, I think it's time to talk directly about what's going on right now with HB6. Mm -hmm. So I tried to draw it out one day from the newspaper and I got arrows going in all kinds of directions yeah. and we have you know first energy giving money to generation now and then generation now giving money to hard-working Ohioans and then hard-working Ohioans spending that money in various ways and generation now spending the money help us make sense of what's going on well, it was pretty clear that I'm going to talk about Householder right now, who, of course, has not been convicted of anything. Uh, you know, this is an indictment, after all, and then it will be adjudicated in the courts. And so I want to be very clear about that up front. Uh, but he wanted to basically hide these expenditures. Uh, I think he didn't want it to be known, except to the individual legislators, that he was supporting particular campaigns. <clears throat> and this was true very early on where he was trying to build a coalition that would elect him as speaker. And he was giving money both to Republicans, mainly to Republicans uh, who were running in primaries and who were, were his people basically contesting the primaries to try to defeat candidates that would have supported his opponent for the, the speakership. 
but he was also giving money to some Democrats uh, and hoping they would be supportive if they got elected uh, and would be, you know, feel beholden to him. But he didn't want to disclose all of that. And so you find this myriad of organizations. Uh, what, Generation Now was the major holding company, maybe the way to put that. But they were giving money to other organizations, all of it designed, I think, to try to make it not transparent where the money was going. Uh, so this was going on during the, the campaign, uh, both in the Republican and Democratic primaries, uh, back before Householder becomes Speaker. Uh, and the money was designed, the contributions were designed to support his campaign to eventually be Speaker. And then, of course, you have money, <coughs> excuse me, that was also flowing, once in Speaker, to support House Bill number six. Uh, and that was money going again into the campaign coffers of various candidates for office for their upcoming campaigns to try to get them to support this particular piece of legislation. And then, by the way, beyond that, he also is trying to prevent that legislation from being repealed through a referendum. And so there was money being spent. And again, I think the intention was not to be transparent about this money because it may not have been illegal activity, but it might have been construed by a lot of voters and certainly the press as unethical activity. And that would have, of course, redounded to the benefit of, of the Democrats. And, and so they didn't want that to occur. Yes, go ahead. Paul, you've said a number of times that householder is directing money to politicians. You use the phrase that, you know, it's undisclosed, and you might have used the word ethics. But the U.S. attorney who's heading this legal action isn't concerned with ethics or the appearance of something inappropriate. Yep. What's the theory of the legal violation? Well, my understanding, and I've not read the indictment, which I guess is very lengthy uh, and very lawyer-like, uh, and I'm not sure I'd understand it even if I read it, but my understanding was that the charges were twofold. One was racketeering, which is a charge of a conspiracy to commit a crime of one kind or another. What was the crime? The crime that is charged, as I understand it, is bribery that basically what they were doing is paying off, these, these are the words of, of the, the indictment uh, or of the, the uh, federal government, uh, the federal attorney, they were paying off individual legislators to vote a certain way. So it was a quid pro quo that was being enacted here. Uh, and it's those two charges that Householder and his allies uh, were indicted for. Now, you know, the question remains is, was there anything illegal about that? And that's what's going to have to be proven, I think, in the, uh, in the courts. Uh, and Householder himself has said, uh, there's nothing illegal there. I'm going to defend myself. I'm not guilty of these things. Uh, now, you know, always, one is always expected to plead not guilty. 
to serious charges like this. Uh, but it may end up that he is not guilty of anything that's a crime. It's not a campaign finance violation, as I understand it. It's rather racketeering and bribery. <coughs> Let me follow up on that. First of all, a politician cannot coordinate with a PAC or a 501c3 directly, am I right? That's correct. I mean, that's a that's a Federal Election Commission regulation. Yes. If, if he yes. were, so is it also a violation of some statute for him to be involved in that respect if it can be proven? Well, here again, I think we need to differentiate between the, the federal requirements, which are requirements of candidates for federal offices, not state offices. Ah, okay. So there are a set of federal requirements there. Those requirements are basically controlled or, or overseen by the Federal Election Commission. Now, the charges that were brought against Householder and his allies are federal charges. And so one wonders whether there are any violations of state law there uh, and I don't know the answer to that. I, my understanding is state laws are far less restrictive about what can go on in these kinds of relationships. But again, I'm not an expert on the state laws. Uh, the contribution limits, of course, are higher for the state laws, but there probably also are provisions in the state code about interactions between lobbyists or political action committees, or maybe even 501c4s, and individual members of the state legislature or the executive branch, for that matter. But it's different. And as I understand it, the charges are not violations of state statutes. The racketeering and the bribery ones are violations of federal law. And they're not violations of campaign finance regulations. Uh, so all of that, I think we'll learn more about that, uh, particularly once we get to the trial. Uh, I look forward to trying to figure out just exactly what is going on there, because I, I don't know for sure what's going on. If we step back from the criminal aspect of it for a minute, you have somebody as a Speaker of the House that obviously wants to get his people into office in the general election, let's just say. Is there any issue with a 501c4 with the speaker directing those funds for other legislatures, not for himself? I think that's probably allowable. Uh, if he takes the money personally and spends it for personal uses, that probably is a violation of, of the law. Uh, again, I don't know that for sure. And of course, that's been alleged, not, not found yet. Uh, but I think that, that, you know, if you go back historically in Ohio, speakers of the House of Representatives uh, and people who were candidates for speaker uh, often were raising money in a campaign fund that they controlled and then were basically you know, doling that money out to various people who were on their team. And in fact, there, there's an irony or a paradox in this. And that is that I think a lot of Republican candidates for the legislature in 2020, for the state legislature, 
were depending upon the householder money to finance their campaigns. And so when all of this blew up, that money disappeared. Uh, it's probably been frozen. I mean, they can't, you know, can't be doled out. And so they were scrambling for campaign funds. Now, will they get them over time? I think that, you know, there's a possibility that they will. Uh, but it left them high and dry in what the summer of 2020 on the eve of a really active campaign for re-election. They're, they're helped by gerrymandering in the most of these legislative districts that are represented by Republicans and, and Democrats for that matter are one party districts. And so even if there is a lot of public blowback to this, uh, wanting to punish legislators for having gotten this money and being involved in, in this controversy, uh, it may not hurt them badly enough to cost them their seats. Although we'll see. Uh, that's what I think the 2020 campaigns uh, and election are going to be about in, in terms of, of Ohio state legislative seats. I think you're going to see a lot less TV, which is a very expensive medium because you're right that the access to the speaker's funds, so to speak, or, or that kind of um, large donations yes. and contributions is so limited now. Mm -hmm. Paul, I sometimes... Yeah, I think the, the, TV, the TV stations are mourning this. <laughs> uh, they do very well. I, I, some years ago, was a consultant for one of the local stations, and, and I was very interested as a political scientist in how much money they were making on political ads, uh, and they wouldn't really tell me for sure. And of course, it's not on the news side of the TV station where this information is held. It's on the marketing side. And I remember talking to some of the marketing people, and in one particular case, they had realized, I think, an inflow of about $20 million in revenue from the campaign funds that were invested in TV advertising. And it was the difference between making a lot of money that year uh, and having you know, revenues that were more resembling what they usually got outside of an election cycle. So yeah, I think the TV stations are going to be hurting. Uh, they're hurting, by the way, I, I'm told by people who are inside of that industry. We read a lot about newspapers losing advertising uh, these days, partly because of the availability, the availability of digital ads that don't really go for the, the newspapers and having serious revenue problems. The TV stations are suffering in the same way. Uh, and the kinds of ad revenue that they've had in the past just isn't there right now, partly because of the pandemic, I suspect, but partly because of changes. Uh, and so they dearly, dearly miss the politicians and their investments in running TV ads. Uh, most of us Ohioans will probably say, thank God we don't have to see all of these ads. Uh, many of them will be national ads, by the way, that, that uh, appear. I was watching some of the football games on Sunday, and there were some national ads there. Uh, so they're investing in, in national networks, uh, but not necessarily the, the uh, local TV stations. You mentioned the word that part of the indictment was this notion of bribery, householder bribing other legislators to vote for him to be speaker and to, and to pass HB6. You know, I can't help but think that there's a fine line between bribery 
and lawful campaign contributions. Because when I go to my state senator and say, hey, think about this, and here's a $500 check for your campaign contribution, the only difference between those two acts is, is the size of the check. Yeah, I think there's a very fine line here. And I think what we're seeing is going to be the defense uh, that, that Householder and his allies are going to mount is that, that you know, this is just normal behavior. Uh, and uh, they all the time are getting money from people who think that, those, that, that that particular legislator is going to vote in a way that is favorable to the particular cause that that donor has. Uh, you know, if they canceled the check uh, after it was issued because the legislator didn't end up voting for their measure, uh, you know, one might say, well, wait a minute. And there was a Virginia case that got all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically said, you know, uh, this may have been unethical behavior, but it's probably not illegal. It's things that politicians typically do for constituents, trying to help their businesses in one way or another. Uh, and I think the, the decision was maybe a seven to two decision. I may be wrong on that, but it wasn't one of these five to four decisions with all the conservative justices on one side and the liberal justices on the other. You're not referring to that case against that was brought against the Virginia governor a few years back, are you? Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, whose name was, was it McDonald? Is that his name? Something I, like I that. I can't remember. Yeah. But it was basically saying, to come back to your point, Jack, it was basically saying, that so much of this, as unsavory as it may seem, and as unethical as it may seem to most people, is politics as usual. Uh, and it's not necessarily illegal. Uh, and it wasn't illegal in that case under Virginia statutes. Uh, it may have been illegal under, I don't know, Minnesota statutes, but it wasn't being done in Minnesota. Well, you know, what we're talking about today, our dark money, isn't inherently illegal or unethical. Um, mm -hmm. So it's how that money is ultimately used that could get politicians in trouble. So, yes. And I, and I suppose for the. Although I think, I think there is a belief that if, if donors are trying to hide their contributions, that may not be quite right. Uh, that we as citizens, particularly before an election, deserve to know who is financing the campaigns of the various candidates and, and the causes themselves. Uh, and I guess I would put myself on that side while recognizing that there will be instances, and I'll go back to my NAACP example, where divulging who the donors are could really be very problematic for the donor himself or herself or for the organization. Uh, and we need to figure out ways maybe that we can somehow in an effective way protect them while by the same token allowing for as much transparency as possible. By the way, in the, I think it was the concurring opinion in Citizens United, Justice Kennedy, I believe, was the one who said independent spending cannot be uh, uh, prohibited 
because that's an exercise of First Amendment rights. But if the Congress wants to say that all these contributions have to be transparent, it could probably do that. Uh, and of course, Congress has not said that, partly because Republicans and also Democrats rather like it that they can get campaign contributions that will help to fuel their campaign, may make the difference between winning and losing, that come from people who don't want the source of that contribution disclosed. Uh, so Congress really isn't going to do anything. Uh, and the Federal Election Commission, by the way, has no fangs. Uh, it really can't make rulings, even on ethical matters, even on violations of the law, because it's divided between Democrats and Republicans. And I think right now doesn't even have a quorum to be able to make any rulings. Uh, so we're talking about a, a campaign finance regime, to use the political science term, but set of laws and regulations that just is not functioning. Uh, and it's in politicians' interests, probably, lamentably, that it not function very well because they rather like what they, what they see right now. Paul, oh, we appreciate the time you spent with us and certainly um, uh, helping us understand the, the way these things work. Your expertise is awesome. Um, thanks so much for, for taking the time for us. Well, glad to have this discussion. And I'll have to admit that it, it's, it's a very complicated area. We didn't really say what dark money is. And dark money, of course, is undisclosed money. And I'm reminded that some years ago, uh, Upper Arlington had a levy that was going to be on the ballot, and there were major dark money expenditures to defeat that levy. Uh, and those actually came, as I understand it, from an organization that was financed by the Koch brothers. It doesn't ordinarily engage in, in using 501 c but did this time because the people who wanted to defeat the levy didn't want it to be known that there was this outside interest that was financing the opposition. Well, let me add my thanks as well, Paul. It was a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. And for our listeners, Lawyer Up will be back in a week with Ohio State Representative Allison Russo. We'll be talking about the efforts to repeal HB6. We'll talk a little bit more about dark money and the challenges that come with the upcoming election. I invite you to subscribe to Lawyer Up by going to uh, our website, lawyerupcolumbus.com. You can download our podcast by going to that app or your favorite uh, app on your phone. Until next time, remember to lawyer up. So long.